Welcome, dear listeners, to another episode of Salem to Scotland, From Magic to Murder. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Rue, your fellow guide on this chilling journey through the dark corners of history. Today, we're deep diving into the shadows of the 17th century Edinburgh, a city where cobblestone streets whispered secrets and dark alleys hid ancient mysteries. (laughs) Our tale begins on the eerie streets of the old town with a man who wore his faith like armour, yet harboured the darkest of secrets. That's right, folks. In this episode, we're peeling back the layers of the enigmatic mayor, mayor? Major, (laughs) (laughs) Thomas Weir, a respected coventer with an extraordinary double life as a warlock of Westbow. We're about to uncover the mysteries behind his black thornwood staff, his peculiar confessions and the supernatural events that still haunt Edinburgh to this day. So grab your broomsticks. Light those candles and prepare for a mesmerising tale of the occult, confession and betrayal. Major Thomas Weir's story will send both shivers down your spine and keep you yearning for more. But before we get into the heart of this story, listeners, remember, subscribe, review and share the podcast with fellow thrill seekers. Your support keeps our cauldron bubbling. And the journey into the eerie world of Major Thomas Weir has only just begun. As we delve deeper into Major Thomas Weir's life, we're met with a man whose presence in 17th century Edinburgh was nothing short of legendary. Imagine a tall, staring figure, always carrying a peculiar black thornwood staff, adorned with satyr heads. Love how you say Edinburgh, it's just so western, I love it. Um, (laughs) The staff isn't just a piece of wood, it's a symbol of his mysterious life. Satires embody the wild spirit of the woods, indulging in excessive wine, drink and endless primal desires. And you see, Thomas Weir was a dedicated Presbyterian covenanter, one of those known as the Bowhead Saints, and those satire heads adorning Weir's staff were half human and half goat. A bit like the devil, eh? Not something that someone of faith would typically be associated with. And the Bowhead Saints were staunch Calvinists. They had a reputation for their unwavering faith and powerful prayers. Weir in particular was celebrated for his eloquent prayers which drew crowds to his home in Edinburgh. So, who were Calvinists? Calvinists are a sub-branch of Protestant Christianity. They focus on the sovereignty of God and the authority of the Bible. Respect my authority. (laughs) Literally, with these people. They were fierce preachers as well. Major Thomas Weir was more than just a man of his faith. He was a soldier serving as an officer in the Scottish anti-royalist army. He even witnessed the execution of General Montrose, a man that he had served under in the past. It's truly remarkable how a man with such strong reputation could have had a double life hidden beneath the surface. The dictamy of his devout faith and his dark secrets is a puzzle we're eager to unravel. And as we venture further into Major Thomas Weir's life, one can't help but wonder what led this saintly covenanter down such an enigmatic and sinister path. The story takes an unexpected and bizarre twist. Picture this. During one of his prayer meetings, Major Thomas Weir was suddenly struck down by a strange illness. It's as if his inner demons had come to life. But what was to follow was an absolute shocker. He began to confess some of the darkest secrets imaginable. Incest with his sister Jean. Involvement in witchcraft, necromancy and even bestiality. It's truly shocking. You'd expect a man like Weir, who was known for his saintly prayers, not to harbour such sinister confessions beneath his stern facade. 
and the initial reaction of the congregation was one of disbelief. Here was a man they looked up to as a religious figure, and suddenly he was confessing to these abominable acts. They were reluctant to accept the truth. We can't help but wonder what led to such a bizarre revelation. What caused the dramatic transformation in Major Thomas Weir's life? There's an eerie mystery here that we're determined to uncover. Who would have thought that our quaint 17th century Edinburgh story would take such a dark turn? I mean, you say that, but Edinburgh has loads of dark history. It's a city full of it, especially for such a tiny wee country that is Scotland. But it's like suddenly switching channels from a period drama to a spine-tingling thriller. Thomas Weir went from being the neighbourhood saint to its confessor of shocking secrets. It's like he flipped the script in his own life. Indeed, and I bet the folks of Edinburgh town back then were probably gossiping more than today's gossip columns and social media enthusiasts. Oh, for sure. Hashtag weird revelations would have been trending for weeks. God, could you imagine if they had social media back in the 17th century, like, and throughout the witch trials? That would have been incredible. Talk about fake news, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but instead of likes and shares, he got a date with the executioner. Talk about a plot twist. Let's talk about Jean, or as she's often known, Grits a Weir. She played quite a role in this confounding tale. Yeah, Gritzel Weir. I don't understand why people chose to call her Gritzel. It's not like it's a more appealing name than Jean, to be honest. Jean's a very Scottish name, traditionally. And this is the sister who stood right beside her brother during this incredible confession. But little did we know she had confessions of her own. Indeed, she had no intentions of letting her brother take the spotlight, you know. She confessed a whole array of supernatural experiences, like devilry and encounters with fairies. Typical sibling rivalry, huh? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Gritza wasn't holding back. She was even implicating her mother as a witch who taught her the craft. It's like the entire Weir family turned into a coven overnight. And can you imagine the chaos that these confessions caused? The authorities had their hands filled trying to make sense of it all. But it's fascinating how a single confession can set off a chain reaction in motion, leading to a witch trial, or in this case, multiple trials. It's a reminder of how hysteria, fear and confessions could turn lives upside down in these turbulent times. Yeah, the church and the societal influence of the witch trials and how it created this mass fear and hysteria. No one made their own decisions. They they didn't make their own opinions at all. They just followed the fear that was being conjured by the church and the higher ups like royalty. There were donkeys on edge. (laughs) Literally. I wonder what we would have confessed to during these times. Could we have made it through without wild tales of witchcraft? I doubt it. Highly, I doubt it. But Rebecca, knowing us, it would be for making a good herbal tea or teaching the young maids how to start a fire. I do like fire. Every, no pyro, no party. I'm be, not being oh, funny. Yeah. We'd probably be accused of running some mystical boutique rather than any nefarious. These two, witches, nah. They're just the town's fashionistas with a touch of mystic charm. But let's not forget, in Thomas and Jean's case, those confessions had some really dire consequences. Oh, absolutely. It's a stark reminder of the superstition and fear that ruled the times and how quickly lives could be turned upside down. And the city Tolbooth was a place where their lives took a dark turn. It's like something out of a gothic novel. Quite a dramatic setting, really, isn't it? But in this case, it was real life and the weight of Thomas and Jean's confessions hung over them. Absolutely. And those confessions weren't taken lightly by the community. People who had heard Thomas spill the beans played a significant role in what was to come. And what came next was a plea of guilt from both siblings. The case was closed, leaving everyone stunned and the siblings' fate sealed. It's a stark reminder of how powerful fear and superstition were back in the days. 
shaping the lives of even the most devout and respected individuals. So this tale is a window into a world filled with intrigue, darkness and secrets. Now we've had our fair share of intriguing stories, but sometimes it's not just the major players who leave a lasting impact. Our Asshole of the Day segment today shines a light on Jean Weir, Thomas's sister, who played a significant role in this dark tale. She didn't just sit back and let her brother's bizarre confessions happen. Jean jumped right in. (laughs) And boy, did she jump in with both feet. She confessed to things that were equally as shocking as her brother. Incest, witchcraft, necromancy and dealings with the devil. Talk about spilling the cauldron, right? But what's fascinating, Rue, is the way she didn't even try and deny or refute her accusations. It's true. She went all in with her confessions, even claiming that her mother was a witch who taught her the craft. It's like she had a one-way ticket to the gallows with no return flight. It's a nice wee thing they shared together, you I know. I know, it's mother, mother-daughter bonding, you Definitely. know, a bit of necromancy, raising the dead. What else do you do on a Saturday night? <laughs> it is puzzling, though. Why would Jean do that? Was it a case of guilt by association, or did she genuinely believe these tales? The pressure and the influence of the church and the community during this time couldn't be underestimated. People were quick to turn their backs on anyone accused of witchcraft, even if it was someone as high-standing as Thomas. In my opinion, Jean's accusations weren't just puzzling, they were downright problematic. Her confessions fueled the fire and sealed the fate of both siblings. A true asshole of the day and a lesson from history here, guys. When the witch hunt begins, do your own research, make your own opinions and don't let fear make your decisions. And now we get into the equally mystical realm of herbalism. You used to work in healthcare, didn't you? I did indeedy, Rebecca, for my sins, of course. And during that journey, I realised how amazing herbs and plants can be for the physical body and how much they can aid healing and maintenance. Our ancestors didn't have access to the processed food and takeaways that we do. And of course, they relied on local land or trade from a little further afield. But they had a great knowledge of their local flora and fauna around them and relied on that to help them maintain the body internally and externally. And just a little side note here. I'm not preaching that I live this all raw plant diet. I can openly admit I'm a slave to the processed food as well. I do love a just eat. But I also learned how powerful their magic can be and how much they can help with the intention and power of magic. Each plant has so many uses, both physically and spiritually. But please be careful if you are going to consume something. Always consult a herbal, herbology book or a herbologist about dosages and toxicities. Herbalism and witchcraft are two peas in a pod, in a magical pod, may I say. In the past, herbalism wasn't just for healing. It had a significant role in both medicine and the craft of witches. Even kings and queens sought out the wisdom of doctors and apothecaries for their ailments, while witches wove enchantments with herbs. Picture this. It's 1618 and the Pharmacopoeia Londonesis is unleashed on the world. It's a go-to guide for apothecaries, brimming with herbs and remedies for nearly every ailment under the sun, or the moon, I should probably say. The witches at the time must have been brewing up some fascinating concoctions. And it gets better, Rebecca. Nicholas Culpepper later translated this herbal treasure trove into English. Suddenly, these magical recipes were accessible to the common folks, including those practicing the mystical arts. Herbal magic for all, if you want to take it that way. But our magical journey doesn't end there. In 1699, the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh conjured their very own herbal book, the Edinburgh Pharmacopoeia. Based on the drafts of Sir... Sir, 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 sir. <laughs> I can't say people's names today. Of Sir Robert Sibbald, 
one of the founders of the Royal Botanical Garden in Edinburgh. It was a treasure trove of herbal wisdom for both healers and witches. And this was more than just a recipe book. Some of its remedies contained over 40 ingredients, including things like insects' eggs, shedded snake skins, and even spider webs. It's almost like a Hollywood portrayal of spell work and witchcraft, isn't it? So what mystical ingredients were stocked in the apothecaries of old? Well, thanks to historical inventories from three Edinburgh apothecaries ranging from 1574 to 1617, we've uncovered their secrets. These apothecaries had a vast selection of raw materials and herbs along with ready-made items like plasters, ointments and syrups. I sound like a pig, oink oink. I'm sure they didn't have spider pig or like superheroes on their plasters. Oh, remember spider pig. These pre-made items were like magical elixirs themselves. They contained a fascinating mix of substances. From senna to opium to roses, cassa, sassafras and even canthrids. The substance secreted by bugs and sometimes even seen as an aphrodisiac. But why why would that be an aphrodisiac? Like literal <laughs> beetle juices and eat and debris. Um oh I know and don't, don't say beetle juice three times. Um but why would you see beetle juice as an aphrodisiac? Like ooh. And these enchanting ingredients weren't just for medicine, they were used for crafts as well. Rose water, jams, spreads and even sweets were created from these ingredients. Yet their magical potential could not be ignored. Without a doubt. Take for instance a recipe for soothing an upset stomach. It included herbs like rose, sage, rosemary, rue, wormwood, lemon balm, scordium, century, angelica and even henbane as an alternative to opium. It's like a potion straight out of a witch's grimoire. It is indeed. You're definitely finding something like that in someone's book of shadows. For sure. The apothecaries knew their stuff. They had an array of glass jars and earthenware pots, each carefully labelled. It's like they were building their own magical collections, just like a witch's altar. So let's dive into some of these enchanting herbs and their properties, and how they could have served both healers and witches in their mystical endeavours. Roses are often associated with love spells. Their uses go beyond romance, though. Essential oils and extracts from roses can act as a respiratory antiseptic, anti-inflammatories, decongestants and antioxidants. All the antis. I know, all the antis, pretty much. They were a vital resource during flu outbreaks and may have played a part in love potions as well. Senna, also known as cassia, is a versatile herb with antibacterial, laxative, antiviral, anti-inflammatory, anti-diabetic, analgesic properties. It's like a Swiss army knife of herbs suitable for both healing, mystical and purification rituals. But now let's talk about opium. Derived from the opium poppy, it has a long history in medicine, offering effects like analgesia, hypnotic states, Antitusive properties, antitusive properties. I'm glad it's not just me today. No, it's not just you, definitely not. As well as gastrointestinal relief. But remember, it also comes with a dash of danger as a potential poison, but it's also highly addictive. You see that throughout history, that many people succumb to addiction of opium. Hellbore, on the other hand, is a versatile multitasker. It can ease symptoms of infection and work as an anti-inflammatory, a decongestant and help with skin diseases. It could be the start of both healing and mystical rituals. You are very correct indeed on that one. There's many uses for hellbore. Lemon balm, on the other hand, a herb with soothing properties, was used to promote sleep and reduce anxiety. In a world of witches, it might have been used in calming rituals or dream magic. But there's more to discover. Lemon balm can lower high cholesterol, soothe insect bites and skin irritation when it's made into a paste. 
and possibly aid in protection spells. Henbane, on the other hand, with its analgesic and sedative properties, was often used for various medical conditions. Yet in some cultures, it's also considered as a narcotic, adding an element of mystery and danger to the mix. And last but not least, there's canathrides, sometimes known as the Spanish fly. While it's used today for skin growths, in the past it might have been viewed as a mystical substance due to its effects and origins. It's a vivid example of how seemingly innocuous ingredients can have powerful and potentially dangerous connotations. You're not wrong there, Rebecca. Herbalism was the bridge between science and mysticism in the days of old. These ingredients healed the body and nourished the mystical realms of witchcraft. And we're not done yet. Our magical journey through history will continue to uncover the enchanting connections between the mundane and the mystical. And don't forget to brew up a fresh batch of knowledge by subscribing, reviewing and sharing our podcast with your fellow history enthusiasts. Whether you're brewing remedies or casting spells, may your endeavours both be healing and enchanting. Preach it. We do nothing but light work here. (laughs) So let's think about the Sabrina realm with us. Mm -hmm. Firstly... My love, my true love, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Sabrina, the girl who could cast spells before she even knew how to drive. How does she fit into the story of the witch and warlock of the West Bow? It's about confessing the magical secrets through. In one Sabrina episode, she's told she can reveal her true self and her magic to her friends. A little bit of a fun fact about this one. That said episode is set on Friday the 13th and it's midnight of Friday the 13th going into the 14th that all her friends forget her magical secret. But it comes with a twist. Her witchy aunts warn her that despite her friends forgetting at midnight, it could still affect her relationships. Magic really is a relationship spoiler if you're not careful. Sabrina decides to share her secret with Valerie who spells the magical beans to Harvey. But there's a kicker. Even when her friends forget, there's some residual energy left. Libby doesn't remember the secret, but remembers her feelings of anger towards her friend. Libby really comes at Sabrina every single time. She really is the Regina George of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. For sure. But in both the real story of Thomas and Jean and the magical world of Sabrina, spilling the magical tea can have real consequences on relationships. Acceptance of magic plays a significant role in this. In the case of Sabrina... Her friends are like, magic, cool, let's have a magical adventure day. Kind of like Ferris Bueller style. (laughs) But in the Witch and Warlock story, it's more like witchcraft, time me like the snake. The contrast between the acceptance of magic in Sabrina's world and the hysteria of the 17th century witch hunts is quite striking, if we're honest. It just goes to show how differently the acceptance of supernatural is portrayed in the two stories. In one, it's a fun adventure, and in the other, it's a matter of life or death. So folks, remember... If you ever want to confess your magical secrets, make sure you're in the right century. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) All right, guys. We've been wandering through the dark corridors of history, but now let's shine a lantern on the 17th century Edinburgh. Ah, the 1600s. A time when cobblestones weren't just for show and people had a close relationship with the plague. In the heart of Edinburgh, you'll find an old town, a place that's steeped in history. It's dominated by the majestic Edinburgh Castle, Perched on an extinct volcano. Fun fact of the day there. (laughs) From there, it's all about the Royal Mile, which, despite its name, is actually 1.8 kilometres long. It's a bit of a Scots mile, really, isn't it? Which is like being difficult. Yeah, yeah, we do. Those uneven cobblestones are like a time machine taking you back. But beneath the streets lies a secret world, the old Edinburgh. The underworld of Edinburgh. Now, this is where it gets really juicy. During the plague, the streets were sealed and families were locked inside of their homes to prevent the spread of disease. 
they say sealed, but really they actually built on top of them. These people were locked away and left to die in their homes while we built a new city above them and they were plunged into the darkness, the underbelly of the city. Does that remind you of anything in recent times? Oh, little Miss Rona who ruined our lives for the best part of two years. Oh, definitely. But back then it was a desperate attempt to stop the plague. But left in those homes and their secrets buried underground. It's very true. It's a very scary thought as well. Could you imagine your own family being shut in and just you can hear them building over you for your life to be forgotten? And that's where we meet Mary King's Close, a street turned into an underground city, a treasure trove of history. It's like something out of a horror movie. Well, minus the zombies, but with a whole lot of eerie stories. It's truly a place where the past echoes through the ages and the spirits of Edinburgh's history linger in the dark corners. So the next time you're in the Royal Mile strolling, beneath your feet lies a hidden history of a city that's seen it all. And just be careful not to trip on those cobblestones. They've been there for centuries and they've got some stories to tell. But also, little side note, anyone that visits Edinburgh, careful what shoes you wear. If it's raining, they are like a slip and slide as well. Oh, I've tripped and decked it on cobblestones <laughs> with stilettos on, so I know the struggle. I've done it before as well. <laughs> Edinburgh. A city of secrets and history gives you chills just walking down the streets. Absolutely, Rebecca. And you know what's even more chilling? The tale of Major Thomas Weir and his mysterious confessions. But you know, some might say it's not just the plague-ridden underground of Edinburgh that gives people the creepies. <laughs> what's lurking in the shadows beside our friend Major Weir? Well, Rue, have you ever heard of the haunted house of Westbow? I have, of course. But you mean Major Weir's old house, don't you? You see, for many years, folks were convinced it was cursed. They thought the old Major Weir's ghost roamed the halls. Talk about a restless spirit. Didn't someone finally brave it and move in? You bet. <laughs> a brave ex-soldier and his wife thought they'd put the ghost stories to rest. And what happened? Well, let's just say they didn't stay very long. They claimed to have seen an apparition of a calf behind their bedside. I mean, that would definitely scare me out of bed if I was just getting cosy for the night. But that's not something that you would typically find in an Edinburgh bedroom every day. Or even in a ghostly bedroom, to be <laughs> honest. It seems that Major Weir's legacy wasn't quite ready to be laid to rest. Well, that's Edinburgh for you. A city where history is more than just old stories. And speaking of old stories, let's go back to Major Weir and uncover the dark secrets of the witch and warlock of Westbow. Now you're talking, Rebecca. <laughs> Onward to uncover the chilling confessions and the mysteries of the old town. We've taken quite a journey through the bizarre and dark confessions of Thomas and Jean Weir. That's right, and it's a tale that leaves you questioning what really happened in those eerie times. You know, I can't help but wonder about Thomas Weir's sudden change in behaviour. Do you think he could have been suffering from some sort of early onset neurological disorder? It's honestly a possibility. In those times, they had little understanding of such conditions, and what we might consider a medical issue today could easily be seen as something supernatural. True. And the church used fear-mongering tactics to control their followers, didn't they? Major Weir was a devoted member, and yet they turned on him really swiftly. It's a classic example of how fear can be used as a powerful tool. The church needed to maintain its grip on the community, and Major Weir's shocking confessions served as a stark reminder of their power. And it's not just Major Weir, it's also his sister, Jean, who played a significant role in unfolding the drama. Ah yes, Jean. The asshole of the day. Her confessions really sealed the deal, didn't they? A wee kiss. <laughs> they certainly did. It's hard to fathom why she confessed to such heinous acts and implicated her own mother. What was she thinking? 
You also have to wonder, was her mum dead at this point? Like, was she pulling someone into it? But yeah. sometimes history has a way of leaving us with more questions than answers. So what are your overall insights into this tale of confessions, witchcraft and family secrets? In my opinion, it's a chilling reminder of how swiftly things could change in those times. A devout man like Major Weir can become a pariah in an instant. It's a cautionary tale about the power of fear and superstition. And it's a story that lingers in the dark corners of Edinburgh, just waiting to give us nightmares. Well, here we are at the end of another captivating journey into the world of Salem to Scotland, from magic to murder. We've delved into the twisted tale of Thomas Weir and his shocking confessions. The man who was once seen as a saint turned out to be the centre of a bizarre and terrifying story. It's a rare story to see someone so heavily involved in the conventional faith make such a U-turn in front of all of his followers. Perhaps there was something more sinister at play. Perhaps he was possessed by a demon. Demon Dean, you don't watch Supernatural, do you? No, I don't. The church must have been very scared and confused. Weir was a high-standing member of their community, a devout man literally known as a saint. And now he confesses to incest, direct dealings with the devil and bestiality. No wonder the church was quick to set him alight and make an example of him. It's a stark reminder of how fear-mongering has been used by religious bodies for thousands of years. So how did Thomas meet his untimely demise? Well, with Thomas, he was burned at the stake in Gallows Lee and his staff was thrown in with him. Many stayed to watch Thomas's body burn, as well as his staff. The statements say his body took much longer to burn than usual and that his staff was turning and writhing in the flames as well as cracking. That sounds horrendous. It's almost as if the magic in his staff was still present but was fleeing quickly within the flames. So what happened to Jean then? Well, Jean was a little bit different to her brother. Despite as equally a shocking confession as Tom, she was sentenced to be hanged in the grass market. But Jean didn't go down without a fight. She decided that she'd try and streak to the audience that had attended her death. I mean, of course, she didn't get very far because the executioner had a firm hand on her. But I appreciate a woman who goes down with a fight. She doesn't want to just make it easy for them, I guess, so... Yeah, no, I wouldn't have either. I wouldn't have. I'd have been fighting to the death, literally. <laughs> and with that, we conclude this chilling chapter of history where the lines between saint and sinner are blurred and the unthinkable became reality. But fear not, dear listeners. Salem to Scotland will return with more tales of mystery, intrigue and dark history. So if you've enjoyed our journey today, we invite you to subscribe, leave a review and share the podcast with fellow enthusiasts of the mysterious and the macabre. And we'll be back with more stories from Salem to Scotland, from magic to murder. Until then, keep your candles lit and your curiosity alive. You go to search for bewitching conversations, arcane adventures, and of course, a little dash of good-natured chaos.